Good afternoon. I'm Rachel Cassandra, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, February 13th. The Petersburg Mammal Center has resurrected its monthly seminar program, Science Series, after a two-year hiatus due to the pandemic. Late last month, the center invited a hydrologist from the Petersburg Ranger, Ranger District up to the stage. Heath Whitaker spent the last few years restoring regional watersheds. KFSK's Shelby Herbert went to his presentation and has more on how his team is saving streams from mistakes made in the agency's past. The library conference room is packed with Petersburg residents of all ages eager to learn about salmon on a Thursday night. There are scatterings of inside experts, some biologists, as well as some U.S. Forest Service employees still wearing their fatigues. But they're outnumbered by students from Petersburg Middle School who are there to collect extra credit points. Whitaker begins his talk with a question. Like what would happen to make it? Yeah, why, why do you think we would, might need to restore something? Yeah. Maybe like you get trees or things that fall into it that maybe alter the course or make it harder for fish or creatures to live in it. Very good, yeah. That's, that's on the money. Whitaker says the Forest Service had the same idea decades ago. And by removing those trees, they made a grave mistake. We actually had some active stream cleaning projects starting, you know, in the 60s and moving into the early 70s. The Forest Service and ADF&G had projects where they would actively remove wood from the channels um, in this mistaken belief that they were helping salmon transit through those areas up to their spawning grounds a little easier. We know better now. The logs these agencies cleared were actually part of the architecture of the stream. Removing them had a cascading negative effect that Tongass ecosystems still feel today. And generally, those types of streams are in the worst shape out of any streams I've seen are the ones that have actively had wood pulled out of them. Some of the conditions that are common, simplified habitat, that's, that's sort of the main one, the lack of pools excessive erosion on certain portions of the stream that change uh, the dimensions usually. Healthy waterways in the forest are a central spawning habitat for the region's salmon. In the audience, longtime Petersburg resident Grant Trask reflected on another instance of federal infrastructure projects harming Tongass salmon habitat in the 60s and 70s. Do we all, everyone here, know why we call this place out the road man-made hole? You guys know the reason for it? <laughs> The uh, state of Alaska came into being 1968. Department of Transportation, one of the things they wanted to do was to expand roads. And so here on Metcalf Highway, they were extending it on out to where it stops now. But they needed to borrow some gravel. This is the worst example on Metcalf Island, if I would guess, on how not to do something. So the state of Alaska, when they put out the contract to extend Metcalf Highway, they were taking gravel out of this particular spot and there were salmon eggs all over. And I was told in 1960, by the time they had that gravel laid out on top of the riprap and the, and the other rock and stuff like that, you could see the reddish color for all the salmon eggs on the surface of the Mitkoff Highway. So that's pretty grim. 
That's pretty grim. Trask worked for the Forest Service around that time, then fished for nearly 40 years. That's why, he says, he takes threats to salmon personally. Today, Whitaker says his team has settled into the work of cleaning up the previous cohort's mess by recluttering salmon habitat. It's like putting your thumb on the end of a hose. That water speeds up, the velocity's more, you get more power. So just the opposite of that, if I take it like this and I change the dimension and get it wider, you lose power. Less power causes creeks to pan out. Whitaker clicks through slides of streams so shallow they barely tumble over the smallest rocks in the riverbed. The debris is the key. Felled trees create pools where salmon can lay their eggs. They also help regulate water temperature and speed. Unobstructed waterways are weaker and warmer than ones with trees in them. Whitaker says studies show that salmon that grow up in these cool, oxygenated waters, like those created by beaver dams, are bigger by an order of magnitude than farm-raised salmon. High air temperatures and low water conditions, that, that's probably the most stressful time for a salmon is that higher temperature, low water, and I guarantee they're going to be hanging out in the deepest pool they can find. Restoration projects like these can be very expensive, requiring heavy equipment and occasionally even helicopters to address trees in the river. Contracts cost anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, but the Forest Service doesn't budget for these projects like they used to. While the agency still provides environmental assessments for these projects, Whitaker says they rely on nonprofit partners like Trout Unlimited and the Nature Conservancy to fund the work. But um, that's, you know, that's Mother Nature. And I think any time that we think that we're going to improve on Mother Nature, like we need to give these salmon a heads up. And, you know. Whitaker's team is currently planning a watershed restoration project on Prince of Wales Island. The project is large scale and will involve the use of heavy equipment. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. School districts around the state are grappling with holes in their budgets for the coming school year. In Ketchikan, district officials are looking at cutting nearly 60 positions. But as Eric Stone reports from Ketchikan, they're hopeful that the Alaska legislature will ease the pressure. Ketchikan's school district is looking at cutting about 15% of its workforce. Here's Superintendent Michael Robbins. And that is across the whole uh, school district with maintenance, uh, IT, administration, uh, teachers. Part of the problem, he says, is that there simply aren't as many kids attending Ketchikan schools as there once were. Next year, enrollment is projected to be down more than 300 students from 2019. That's a 13% drop in enrollment over the last uh, four years. So that's a pretty significant drop. Some students might be moving to private schools, but Robin says the vast majority of the drop is simply due to the fact that fewer people are raising their children here. Predominantly, we've found that students are and families are leaving. That's in line with statewide trends. Alaska's population is aging, and fewer people are raising kids in the state. The president of Ketchikan's Teachers Union, Sarah Campbell, says she's concerned about the impacts a shrinking school system could have on Ketchikan and the state as a whole. We're in the midst of a national teacher shortage. And yet in Alaska and here in Ketchikan, we're talking of cutting staff. Um, that concerns me deeply as a lifelong Ketchikan resident 
and as somebody um, who hopes to have grandkids in our school system. Declining enrollment, though, is just one piece of the problem. Robbins points to state education funding as another. Next year, school districts are scheduled to receive a little under $6,000 per student. That's about what it's been for the past six years. The legislature voted last year to increase the per-student amount, known as the base student allocation, by 30 bucks a kid. That is half a percent. Meanwhile, Robbins says costs are rising, and quickly. So through inflation, increase in uh, energy costs, increase in transportation costs with, with gasoline. It's, the budgeting has been very difficult for us. Ketchikan might be worse off than others. After years of underfunding, the district is planning to put millions more towards its health insurance program this year. But districts across the state are feeling the pain. They've cut costs. So that means fewer teachers and fewer programs available for students. Retired Homer teacher and school board member Tim Doherty recently told the state Senate Education Committee that his local schools have cut key activities. Our shops were open, not only to the kids, to the community for coming in after school. We had uh, active, not just sports programs, we had debate and drama and music, and they were all top-notch. We've lost those things. And Sitka High School student Felix Meyer says similar cuts in his district are hurting students. At the high school, we are now down uh, in Sitka, we are now down to the bare bones, as many others have testified. And what that means is that with every teacher lost, you're cutting a program. And when you cut a program, you are cutting students' will to come to school. Many districts around the state are struggling to fill basic jobs, like custodians and cafeteria workers, not to mention teachers. In Nome, school board president Sandy Martinson told lawmakers that her district loses about 20% of its staff every year. She says the salaries her district can offer just don't cover the cost of life in rural Alaska. She's calling for more funding. That would help us support our teacher retention and provide for the much-needed costs of living in a remote community. And lawmakers are considering it. Senate Bill 52 is circulating, which would hike the per-student figure by $1,000. Ketchikan's Borough Assembly recently endorsed the bill as part of a joint resolution with the local school board. Robbins, the Ketchikan superintendent, says it would provide $6 million for the district if passed, which he says would help close the budget gap. Senate Education Committee Chair Luca Gale Tobin, an Anchorage Democrat, says adequate education funding is the chief priority of the bipartisan Senate Majority Caucus. She says the proposed $1,000 increase is the beginning of a conversation. Ketchikan Independent Representative Dan Ortez says he'd like to get the conversation started in the lower house of the legislature, too. I'm going to be introducing a bill that would increase the BSA to 1250 rather than the 1000 and, um, and so we'll see where that goes. And that's mainly just to get the discussion going on the House side. Ortez says increasing education funding is an investment in the state's future. They used to teach economics, and they talked about how, in the end, any economy, the human capital in that economy is the most viable resource that you um, that you're going to have. But it will be a tough conversation. Adding $1,000 to per-student funding would increase the state budget by more than $250 million, according to nonpartisan legislative analysts. That would require a cut to other state expenses, including Governor Mike Dunleavy's proposal to pay permanent fund dividends of more than $3,800. Senator Burt Stedman, a Sitka Republican representing much of coastal southeast Alaska, put it this way. But we're going to have to make a choice. Do we want to teach our kids to cash checks or do we want to teach them to read and write? and do arithmetic. And that'll be fundamentals of the debate. More hearings on the bill are expected in the coming weeks. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone.
A bill adding criminal penalties for harassing 911 dispatchers or abusing the 911 system in Alaska is advancing closer to a vote in the state Senate after the legislature failed to pass it last year. The Alaska Beacon reports that the bill from Republican Senator David Wilson would make threatening a 911 dispatcher a Class B misdemeanor. Repeatedly calling 911 after being asked to stop would also be a misdemeanor. The legislation was inspired in part by an incident in which one person called 911 more than 85 times in an eight-hour period during the 4th of July holiday. 23 states have similar laws on the books, and Wilson's proposal passed the Senate last year but failed to pass the House before the end of the 32nd legislature. State workers rallied in Juneau last Friday for better benefits, full staffing, and safe working conditions. But as Claire Strumpel reports from Juneau, they were mostly there to support the Division of Public Assistance staff, who are working through a months-long backlog for food stamps. What do we need? Union President Don Bendick leads dozens of state workers in a chant on the Capitol steps in Juneau. The rally is for all the thousands of workers in the union, but its focus is on supporting those in the Division of Public Assistance. The union criticized the state's plan to hire contract workers to fix a months-long backlog of food stamp applications. It called for safer workplaces and for the state to hire more permanent Alaska employees. We have got to staff this permanently. We cannot do this temporarily. Joey Tilson is a Division of Public Assistance worker from Ketchikan who spoke on behalf of union members wearing a Viking-style knit hat. And we cannot do a Band-Aid fix. And we cannot go and temporarily fund the staffing. Alaskans are being harmed by this. Every person that you know and love is somehow affected by public assistance in this state. She says she appeared before the legislature last year on behalf of the union to ask them not to cut jobs. But the state defunded more than 100 positions in the division anyway. Anchorage Democratic Representative Genevieve Mina says she was a legislative staffer when that happened. And there were concerns that were raised by legislators, by union members, by folks at DPA and all across the board who were talking about the, the crisis that could come if you don't all have the research that you need to do the work to serve Alaskans. And now, look what's happened. We're in a crisis. Union President Heidi Dragas calls the division's staff shortage dire. But she says the state's plan to hire contract workers breaks its collective bargaining agreement with employees. She says the contract workers are likely to be from out of state. It's a blatant violation of our contract, but we made it very clear um, to the commissioner um, and the director of personnel and labor relations that we would like to amicably resolve this issue. Dragas is also concerned that the Dunleavy administration has ordered division staff to return to their offices while they face threats of violence from Alaskans who are frustrated and desperate after months of waiting for benefits. She says security contracts should have been in place first. Workers are afraid to return to work, to return to the office. And until those safety measures are put in place, um, we don't think they should have to. Meanwhile, Tilson said conditions are hard for Division of Public Assistance workers. Morale is low. Um, They're distrustful of administration right now. Uh, Many of them want to leave. Many of them have left. 
you know, there's many days that I have thought about leaving, but I can't because I, I want to take care of Alaskans. But she said she's heartened by support from legislators and new leadership in the Department of Health. Division Director Deb Etheridge began just weeks ago, and Commissioner Heidi Hedberg has been in her post only a few months. Tilson said she's willing to give them a chance. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Claire Strimple. For KFSK, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Coming up, local and marine weather.